0: All right, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here with us today. Whether you're in person or whether you're joining us online, thanks for being here with us this weekend to worship. Uh, Before we uh, get into the message today, just a quick uh, touch point on starting point. Again, Grow Night is happening starting August 16th at 6 p.m. here at Life Church. And so if you wanna get into a class uh, where you can bring any questions that you have about your faith uh, to the table, starting point is, is the one I would recommend. Uh, a lot of people, whether you're a new, a new believer or you've been a believer for 50 years, maybe you've switched churches from time to time and you still have questions, or maybe you want to hear the questions that other people have, I want to encourage you to get into that starting point group. Uh, Mike will be the leader for that. It'll happen for eight to ten weeks on that Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Uh, you can sign up after service. Jennifer will be out there uh, in the cafe. You can also check out our app. You can check out our website. Uh, and you click Grow Night, you can sign up for starting point there. But don't forget, there's not just starting point. There's other classes uh, available for Grow Night. And the whole point isn't just to know more about a topic. We feel that topics gather people, but the emphasis for Grow Night is to find a community of people who are trying to think through and work through some of the same things that you are uh, today as well. So if you want to find community, you want to know more and grow deeper in your relationship with God and others, uh, sign up for Grow Night. And so the last couple weeks and this week and next week, We're going to continue to talk about the same topics of Grow Night in our sermons. And so this week, we're going to talk about having conversations in our faith. I think if we're all being honest, like sharing your faith with people can be challenging. Not a lot of people know where to start, and not a lot of people know what to do once you've got started having a conversation with someone, and it can be challenging to reach the people especially that are closest to you. And so as I was, you know, studying this week and really praying about what to talk about, I have a million and one stories, I think we all do, with how we've shared our faith. And what I don't want today to be is you just to get the glimpse in my life because your stories that you've experienced and sharing faith with the people around you are just different. And the other thing I don't want to do is I don't want to answer your questions. I want to let God answer your questions. And so as I was studying this, two passages of Scripture stood out to me. Acts chapter 17 and 2 Kings chapter 5. You can make a note of that. You can go read these. We're going to go through them today. But what I want us to do today is let God tell the story. We're going to let Scripture be our story and be our guide. And I think we'll see this as we talk. When you share your faith with someone, there's kind of one to two outcomes that happen. Number one, you can be a conduit. You can be someone who God is using. And through you, they can experience God. Or, I think what happens more often than not, or more than we would care to admit, is that you become a barrier to that person seeing Jesus. I think the world around us, how many people, you don't have to raise your hands, but have experienced church hurt, or hurt from a relationship from a person who claimed to be in their faith. You see, I think what we miss is while we're trying to bring people to know Jesus, what we end up doing is we end up playing Jesus ourselves. And what happens then is people then place their trust in you and not the true Christ. And then when that relationship is strained and and you're no longer talking, you're no longer friends, you're no longer on the same page, or maybe they've hurt you, now you think that Jesus has hurt you. And now your relationship with Jesus was just never there, and you're trying to figure out what this was from the beginning. So you have to go back to the beginning now and start over. But we as believers have done a really poor job of actually leading people to Jesus and said we've just played Jesus for people, And so I think you're going to see the different walks through the stories today that we'll talk about in Scripture, these different accounts. Whether you're new to your faith, you can see what it was like. Or whether you're someone who's been a seasoned Christian and you've, you know, you've gone about it wrong, you've had the wrong heart, the wrong intention. Or whether you're someone who's like, I really need to know or figure out what I've got to do. I think these two stories that we're going to read are going to really help us uh, set the tone for today. So we're going to start Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start in verses 16, and we're going to go through 34. Uh, I want to take a quick minute to apologize to Rhett Peffley, who was running production first service. I didn't give him all the scripture, and it wasn't on the screen, and that was my fault. And I had him thinking that he was screwing up. So they have fixed it. Our production team has gone in and made sure all the scriptures are up there because I failed to do so. And that's the theme of today. I failed to do it, but God can. Okay. So Acts, uh, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, we start with this. and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, the context of where Paul is at, put yourself here. In the world today, we know Greek was very well known for their art. Like Greek statues, Greek monuments, this whole idea that Greek is a vacation wedding, or a honeymoon, sorry, uh, vacation that people want to do after their wedding because it's so beautiful. Like the scenery, is un- it's undeniable. But here's Paul living in it, in a culture where they were erecting these statues and these idols, and they're everywhere. You know, some commentaries say there was roughly 3,000 altars of worship around where Paul was in this little Areopagus, which is also known as Mars Hill, if you've ever heard of it. This little area was just filled with idols. And here's Paul. And it says he's waiting for them. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas, who we read about in Scripture, so that he can do ministry. But he doesn't wait for them to start ministry. He's out doing it. And again, go back to the Greek culture. What we know most about the Greek world is their philosophy their arts, their wisdom literature. You know, they teach this in schools today. And here's Paul in the middle of this. It says he's talking with people that are foreigners, that are people that are from the Athens area. And it says there's Epicureans and Stoics to really quickly clarify what that means. It's people who are self-indulgent or people who are like, yeah, we gotta figure out life, but be free from all of these things in the world. Philosophers. And he's having these big debates with philosophers who, who are open to any idea around them anything that would be new and so Paul starts preaching the very truth and the thing that he knows he says I'm going to preach Jesus it says in scripture Jesus in the resurrection and these philosophers as knowledge driven as they were really didn't even believe in eternal life very few people in that time did and so their ears perk up and they're like hey why don't you come share more about this God that you believe in we want to know this new way of of life But look what Paul did. We can take this away from the story, I believe. There's two things I think Paul did very well that we can learn from. Number one, he was consistent, meaning every day he was out conversing with people. And the other thing, not only was he consistent, he was available. Like he looked around him in a world full of idolatry and an idol for everything that you need, and he didn't sit in his house and say, I can't stand this. This world's nasty. I disagree with all these people and seclude himself and just make excuses for why he couldn't go evangelize to people. Paul was consistent and he was available for people to have conversations about Jesus and the resurrection. That's what happens today. We, we stifle our opinions and we keep it behind closed doors that we have a really bold opinion. We never really just go out and be like, hey, like I see all this stuff. Can you tell me more about it? We sit back and we hide behind a conversation that we're not willing to have with people. And then what does Paul preach? It's Jesus and the resurrection. What he stands on is the truth. This is where the church is missing today. I don't think we're that much different in this culture than Athens was. Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection and people are attracted to that truth What's happening in the church today is the church is going out to the world and bending the truth or forsaking the truth in order to attract people and then bring them in. We are swaying from the foundation of the Bible in today's world for the sake of attracting people when here's Paul preaching the truth. And we'll learn later that not everybody liked that. But everybody was curious. I think we can relate with that. I think everybody wants to know what heaven looks like. I think you want to know what the, reuni- uh, the, the reunification would be like when you see someone that you loved in heaven. Or, or what did creation really look like? We're, we're naturally curious. We want all these questions. But Paul isn't going to sit and facilitate all the questions and, and try to win all the debates. What he sits back and does and he says, well, let me tell you about what I know. So he's going to go on in verses 22 uh, through 31, and he's gonna say this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man For in him we live and move and have our being, as, some, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. At times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul goes over here in the middle of this idolatrous world and he talks about all of their, he talks through their questions with a simple answer, with the truth. He doesn't just sit there and say, okay, what's your question about creation? Okay, well, it's actually this. Or what's your question about this? Okay, well, actually it's this. No, he he relates to the people. He relates really well to the Athenians here he says I see that you're very religious I see you have a devout belief system you know what I've got a pretty strong belief system too he says I know that you're you're very influenced by art and culture but let me tell you about a designer who created things with nothing let me tell you about the God that I know though you have a God that you don't know the unknown God So he opens up the door and he says, well, let me get to understand your perspective so I can begin to have a conversation about who my God is, and it's based on truth. You see, what we find today is, as we're bending and swaying in the truth in church, Paul is going back to the old truth, the truth that existed at the beginning of creation, the truth that is still here today and that is to come that has not been disproven. He relies on the truth and who God is as his basis for this conversation. And he doesn't sit there and wow them over or win them over with Scripture or or try to tell them, hey, listen, here's something new compared to what you're thinking. He just says, this is the truth that I know, and this is what I have. Let me share this message of the God that I know with you. But the other thing I want to look at is what caught Paul's eye here was an altar of worship. Something stood out, and on that altar, the inscription said, to the unknown God. So look inward for just a second. If we were to look at your life, would you have an altar, and what would its inscription be? Because what we do in today's world, we live in a materialistic world, a very image-driven world where people have to look at me a certain way. What altar would people see when they look at you, and what God would it be to think about this an altar is meant to sacrifice something for something whatever your altar is for it's evident right like we all have families or we have you know we come from families and we have a house but in today's world we want a house that looks better than everyone's else we want it to be clean and have all the fixings and we want a, a car that goes along that matches the house because god forbid you have a bad car in your driveway and a beautiful house and then we have families right Parents, today, it's okay that your kids make mistakes. It's not your job to cover up for them and make it look like you have a perfect family. Husbands and wives, nobody has a perfect marriage. It's okay to not project that your marriage is perfect to everyone. It's okay to have some problems. Everybody does. Here's the difference. We will die and sacrifice everything on this altar of having an image before we would ever sacrifice anything to God. If people are looking to you for an image, what do they see? In the, in the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, go back into Exodus 20. You can read about this. God said, you know, he forbid the making of idols, worshiping of idols. But what else God told Moses is that if you make an altar to me, make it of earth. Make it of, of rocks and sticks and mud and clay. He says, do not, do not make an altar of precious stones, not polished, not attractive. Just like today's world, when you make an altar that's more attractive, you miss the purpose of what the altar was really for in the beginning. You're supposed to make it of earth because it's about the importance and the meaning of the altar. When you erect these big altars to to make people look and be attracted to you and your lifestyle because it looks so nice and pleasing, you defile the altar's purpose. So if if there's altars in your life, How do you take them down? Are you? And how are you going to the one, because the one that matters, people live for the Hallmark. People wanna be on the Hallmark Channel. They want the perfect family, the snow that hits at the end and everybody's happy and joyous. I have watched people and I have been the person. Not, not proud of it. But I've sacrificed relationships I have sacrificed people coming to know Jesus. I've sacrificed time and I have sacrificed money because I thought it was better to project this image over on this altar. And what I lacked the entire time was my relationship with God and worshiping him and giving up my life for him. Like I said I would when I said, I would believe in you and I would follow you. So are you willing to give your life over here or are you just gonna continue to give it over here? And this is something that Paul brings up to the Athenian people. He's like, you have this, but you don't even know what it's for, so let me tell you about my God. He goes on in verse 32. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others joined. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You see, some people would argue that this is one of Paul's most ineffective sermons because he gives a very clear-cut answer and people walk away. I would argue that it's still very effective because you know what else happened? People joined him. Understand this. When you say something to someone or your response to people doesn't have to win them over. They don't have to follow you. You know, you might be new to your faith and be like, well, I thought the gospel, that message is supposed to change people. It is. You're not. And what we end up doing is we say, well, I've got to be the one to bring about the change, so let me change my message so that way you will follow me. Understand this. In your faith journey, when you're sharing your faith with people, they're going to walk away. They're going to mock you. Your family will hate you. You're gonna have adversity when you're sharing the truth. But understand this, people have hinged their faith on this idea that if you come and you can answer all my questions, then I'll believe. Let me tell you right now, if if your faith is hinged on having all the answers, you're gonna struggle the rest of your time in faith because nobody knows all the answers. There is a God who knows. And our job as believers is not to make people believe, it's to share the gospel with them. The greatest advice I ever had growing up in ministry when I interned out in San Diego was this. Hey, guess what? You're never going to change anybody. Welcome to the club. I was like, I don't like that. I thought that's what we were in the business of, changing people's lives. He's like, well, lives will be changed, but it's never going to be through your own hands. It's going to be through God. And I'm like, oh, boy. (laughs) So then what do I do? I think most of us can relate to that. Well, if I can't do anything, then what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be doing something without doing something. No, listen, when you're obedient to God, understand when you share your faith with someone, they already got their mind made up. They already have pre-programmed in their head what they're going to believe. It's your responsibility to be a vessel, to be a conduit. Connect them to God. But don't stand in their way in faith just because you feel the need to help fix all their problems. So now we're going to transition stories. We talk about Paul being used by God to share this message where some people mocked him and some people stayed. The people that stayed were big figures in sharing uh, the gospel and setting up the church, Dionysius and Damaris. Like you can read historical evidence of their ministries. So you understand how a man can be used by God and he's not there to swoon people and please people. He's there to tell them the truth and not bend on the truth. But now we'll go to 2 Kings chapter five and we're gonna look at a story I think that more of us can relate to. And while you're turning to 2 Kings chapter 5, I want you to uh, give a little bit of context here. There's a a guy named Naman. Naman is a Syrian army commander, and he has leprosy. So Syrians are, they worship different gods, they follow different idols, they worship those idols. But this army commander in Syria is going to be sent by the king of Syria to the king of Israel, God's chosen people, so he can be healed. So 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 6 through 19. This is what I screwed up last service, is I didn't give them all of this scripture, so you guys are blessed enough to have all of it. Starts in verse 6, it and says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me, me. This king in Israel is King Jerom. He's wicked and he's evil. He's following other idols, he's worshiping other gods. But he's God's chosen people. That's what people know. And here's a man named Naman. And he comes up to him, and that's his first impression of a man of God, a king of God's people. Is why are you coming to me? Well, it looks like it's the right response, but he's looking inward. I think we can relate to this more than we, we want to admit. When people come to us with problems, naturally we feel the weight on our shoulders that we've got to help them fix it. When you come to me and you say, hey, listen, I need help. This is what's going on in my life. I'm struggling financially. I'm struggling in my relationships. I don't understand these things that are happening around me. When they come to you as a believer, naturally, we put that on our shoulders and we say, okay, i got to walk with this. we got to figure this out. The problem is that we try to do too much on our own, with our own hands, and never point people back to God, who was the one who was going to perform the miracle in this case. You see, I think we hinge our faith on that. When people come to you, a believer in Christ, and say, hey, I need help, you naturally feel like if I can't help you, then you're not gonna trust me, and you're never gonna wanna come back to me. And if you don't come to me, then you're definitely not gonna go to the church because I'm doing this in the name of, and then if you don't go to the church, then you're just never gonna trust Jesus, so I have to figure this out. We put this unnecessary burden on ourselves. We make a scene. We make it about us. Remember, it was never about what you can do, but about what God can do, But Naman doesn't know this God yet. He's heard of him. His view of God in Syria, they were idol worshippers, worshiping different gods. So his view of God was that my God's here can't, but that God over here can. And this is where Elisha comes in, the prophet of God. And this is what uh, happens with Elisha. It says in verse eight, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Are not Abana and Perper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You see, Elisha calls the king of Israel out. He's like, Why in the world would you react that way when you know that you couldn't do it? Because now this man's first impression is this. He calls him out on it. But Elisha, what does he do? He sits in his own house, he doesn't even come outside. When Naman came to him with his, with his people, he stood in the doorway, and Elisha didn't even so much as greet him at the door that we read. He sent a messenger to him. <laughs> and he said to the messenger, You're going to go tell Naman he's going to go dip in the Jordan seven times. Now, again, look at Ma, um, Naman's view. He didn't know how this was supposed to go. He's, I'm supposed to come to the king of Israel and be healed. And now this man of God is, is telling me. Like, he's not doing anything for me. He's not waving his hands at me. He's not trying to call down fire and brimstone and trying to heal me and trying to do everything for me. But he doesn't know. But Elisha doesn't even place his hands upon him. And Naaman's angry. It says he walks away. He's like, and hang on, there's two other rivers over here that I could be in that are way cleaner and way more known. You want me to go to the dirty Jordan? What? It doesn't make sense in his view. But Elisha knows this. Elisha is being used by God. And think about this. If, and we, we don't read this in scripture, but I think we can imply the, apply this. If Elisha had laid his hands on Naman, a person who had not yet experienced God, and God did heal him, you know what Naman would probably have gone back to Syria and said, this man healed me. Look what this man did. But Elisha didn't correct him. Elisha probably knew that by letting God be the one to intervene in his life, that he would go back to Syria and tell the people with stagnant idols made of stone and gold and silver, listen, a God healed me. Elisha didn't put himself in the way of what God was gonna do. He was giving the glory to God to show that the king might have failed in his response, but I want you to know there's a prophet, a man of God here who's gonna be used by God so you can experience God. So he goes, he dips in the, in the Jordan seven times, it says, and he's restored. And then it goes on and he says that the people surrounded Naman when he, before he goes and dips in the river. Naman was angry. In order to get to where he was going, he surrounded himself with people or people were around him who said, listen, it's not about what they can do. We're here for God. And if this man of God said it, why wouldn't we? Do it. I think we need to remember that in life today, like who's surrounding you and encouraging you to experience God or see God versus who's telling you go to this person and trust in this person. Because we should be conduit. We should be trying to get people to experience God. And this is what happens then next. In verse 15. It says in verse 15, then he returned to the man of God. He and all his company And he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, this is Elisha talking to him, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant Will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in that house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. Why would Elisha just say, Go? The first claim here, and I think we all would want to jump on this if, this were, if we were in these shoes. When, when, when Naman says, listen, there is no God anywhere else in this world except for here. You would naturally want to be like, hang on a second. God created everything, and he created everything. And so he's actually omnipresent, and he knows everything. So he's actually everywhere at all the time. And if you want to believe in this God, uh, he's not confined to a place. And you'd want to give him the spiel. Elisha didn't do that. He said, go in peace. He knew Naban's view. He walked with him enough to know what he would be thinking. And Naman's like, I've experienced God. I want to take this God, and I want him to be everywhere that I go. You know, just like when Paul took the conversations of Jesus wherever he was, Naman experienced God and wanted to take the very soil from where He was healed, and he wanted to go back and tell people that this God can do that thing. You see, I think this is where we miss in our faith, is we want to answer those questions for people, or correct their wisdom, or correct their understanding, correct their knowledge. But when someone's experienced God, you can start all the conversations after that. We got it backwards. What we want to do is say, all right, this is who God is, and this is what you need to know, and this is why your life is the way it is, and this is what's going to happen to you, and these are all these things. Do you choose to accept the terms and conditions of being a follower? And then people are like, I want nothing to do with that. That's a lot of rules and a lot of things that I don't understand. And then what we want people to do is accept it on the spot and not let them experience God. I've been a part of churches When they say, hey, raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus today, and then they do nothing about it. We are driven on getting that result and getting that response. But what about someone over here who's accepted him in his heart? He doesn't know a thing about God, but I've experienced him and I can't deny him. We look at that person like they're believing in a false God because they don't know enough. They don't have enough knowledge. They don't have enough understanding about God. How could they ever follow him? People don't need your answers, they need experiences. They need you to walk them to the only person that could answer their questions. They don't need you to stand in the gap and stand in their way and be a barrier and make it about what I can and what I can't do. They need a God who can do whatever he wants, create the world out of nothing through a spoken word. People want that, but we just look at it backwards and we judge those people for not having enough knowledge but then the other thing is this the other thing we like to do is we don't want people to believe anything different than us topic x y and z is your opinion over here you're an unsaved person you have a topic and you believe one way on it it amazes me it blows my mind in the church we stress about people not believing the same way as us you know what our response is you need to believe what i believe how many people you think are going to come to jesus that way zero. If they do, it's force and it's religious. If you want to change someone's outlook on topic X, Y, or Z, you know what you need to do? Show them God. Then maybe they would change their ideas of what topic X, Y, and Z is. If you spend your entire life trying to change their minds about their view, you're going to die before you ever see anything happen. Because you can't change anything. You can't change the outcomes of their life. You can't change the circumstances surrounding their life. You can't change their viewpoint. What you can change is their understanding of God by being with them and understanding where they are. Paul walked with the people in Athens daily and said, I wanna understand what's going on in your world so I can tell you about the God that I serve. Elisha did not condemn an unbeliever He let him believe in God and experience God and then the conversations could have taken place. There's an effect in ministry that we all miss when we try to put ourselves in the way of what God can only do. You don't have to have all the answers. I'll tell you that right now. When I was new to my faith, I knew nothing. Does that mean Jesus couldn't save me? Nowhere in the Bible does it say once you study this whole thing and know this whole thing, then you can follow. That's what we all believe, though. I can't go there yet. I can't believe yet because I don't know enough, man. I don't know enough yet. Listen, you will never, never know enough. You will never be able to tell someone everything they want to know. You'll never be able to justify why people's lives are the way they are, but the church is really good about doing that. The church is very good about saying, "You you know why this is happening in your life? It's because of this sin in your life. It's because you chose to do this. That's why God's doing it, duh. You know why people are dropping out of church and believing in other things and other gods? Because we're pushing them away. It's not street side evangelism. And I would say this, if you have to shove Jesus down people's throat, then you're the one that's probably missing the message. Walk with people. And the other thing is this, I'm gonna invite the worship team up. Don't forget where you came from. When Paul said that God fashioned all of humanity and existence out of one man, we are descendants of that. We live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And guess what? Every single person in this room needed and or needs a Savior. And what we forget to do in in our faith when we're sharing uh, these stories and opening conversation with people is we forget that that was us. You know, like we talk about when you reach people, it's got to be people that are close to you, and you got to have relationships with them. But we break those relationships because we're holier now. Listen, we look back, and you're like, God, thank you for bringing me here where I'm at. I can't believe that I was once here, and now I'm over here. God, you're so good. But why do they think that way? Why do those people think like that? That is asinine. I can't understand why they don't believe what I believe. And this is, we miss, like that was you. So in John chapter eight, I'm just referencing this if you wanna go read it. The Pharisees, the people who knew the law, who knew things, it was written on their heart. They knew God better than anybody else. They bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus while he's teaching. And they say this woman was just caught in the act of adultery. The, The punishment then was to be stoned to death. That's what the law said. That's what they wanted to do. And this is where Jesus draws a line. He said, all right, let he who is without sin cast the first stone then. I don't know if you want to admit this or if you've ever thought about it, but I think every one of us should wrestle with this. We are very quick at casting stones and throwing stones upon people. But look at what Jesus, he tells that woman, he says, go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Jesus knew that everybody in that interaction and us today are sinners. Sometimes when we get down in our faith, we don't want to admit that we are anymore. Now, every one of us is a sinner, fallen short of the glory of God. And at one point in your life, needed an encounter with God and you needed Jesus to bring you out of that so that you can learn to live free and live under the blood of the lamb who died for your sins. But we forget that relatability. You forget you had a story. You don't know where to start You don't have to know all the knowledge. Pull this, uh, I'll pull this picture up really here. Pull this picture up really quick. Has anybody seen this before? Okay. Each little line underneath this graph is a chapter in the book of the Bible. And you can see where the lines are. They're kind of light gray, dark gray, white or whatever. That's a book of the Bible. And each line connecting them is a connection in scripture. The color is based upon how far away it was based on the order that we have of God's word. There are 64,000 connections in that book. And we wanna say, eh, let me help you. We wanna go in place of that. No man has ever nor ever will write a book that has that many connections. Divinely inspired scripture was given to each of us People died so that we can have a Bible right now, so that we can know God. As believers, we won't even look at that, though. We'll say, well, here's what I know. Listen, you you got questions about your faith. Hey, me too. (laughs) I got a lot. I got like 64,000 that I want answered right now, at least. There's probably more on there because I know Scripture doesn't talk about a lot of things that I want to know. But I'll tell you this, I would much rather be used by God so I can show people that God that, that rescued me, the God that I found on my search when I had nothing left to, to, to do in my life. I was at my end. My marriage would be in shambles today if it wasn't for God. My life would be in shambles. I wouldn't be the parent that I am. And I'm not perfect still. But God was a part of my story. And listen, I've been guilty and maybe you have too. I've, I've tried to play the person. It's like, well, let me, let me help you understand why you're dealing with with this thing or this thing. But the more I've grown in my faith and the more I've watched people come to their faith, you know the one thing that's encouraged me is when people find that God who can write this Bible that is our absolute truth, that is our standard in our belief system, that gives us morality, that gives us ethics and gives us everything that we need. That God changed my life. He can change yours too. So ask yourself this question this week. Am I gonna stand in the way and pretend like I know all that take care of everybody's problems for them, or am I going to step back and be like, listen, there is a God who can do absolutely anything, and he can and has saved anyone as long as they give their life to him. When you can bring people to know that Jesus, that Savior, their life can change, and it's not about what you did or you were able to. Sometimes you just got to take them and say, here's the God that changed my life. So will you please stand so I can pray for you. I have failed you, God, more than I ever care to admit. I fall short every day. I don't know everything. I don't want to claim to know everything. I want to claim to be a son of you, though. I want people to know that if they look into my life, they see me staring up at you because I don't know it. I don't know the answer. I don't know the why. I just want people to understand that you saved me. You can save them. I want to be used by you. God, if we walked away from this moment right now, I just it makes me wonder what would our response be? If someone needed to see you, what convicts me, God, is that would I show you or would I show what I know and would I show myself? I pray that you give us the wisdom that we need in every circumstance of not just what to say, but how to show people who you are. That salvation is available for everyone. Don't let me hinder what you can do, God. I don't want to be in your way. I don't ever want to be found standing in the gap for you. I want you to use me. I want to connect people to you. I want you to get the glory, not me. So Lord, help us as we go out equip us and let us know that if we rest in you, that you've got it all figured out. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.